0: Market VSP the, the stops. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is here on a Sunday morning, at least. Kinda. The good news, market's not open, so whether or not things get better or worse, we won't know until tomorrow. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Near Mahati. Good Doc. Good day, Captain. Mate, we're here for another mailbag extra episode. I think it's our favourite, is that fair to say? Oh, I love the mailbag. How good is that? So Mate, we're going to try and get through quite a bit that we have. I got a message during the week from someone saying, Hey, did my question drop off the list? It's like, No, it didn't. Try. We're just trying to get through them as much as we can. So, <laughs> our apologies if it takes a little while for your questions to be answered. We are doing our level best. We get so much great content. We, I feel bad about excluding any of it. Very occasionally, we leave one out if it's a kind of a, a company we don't know about or something that's super topical or super timely that simply gets passed by the time we get to the, to the mailbag. So, we don't answer every single question, but we try and answer about 99% of them if we can. Let's get straight into it, mate. The first question we've got is from Chris. Chris says, "Hey Scott, I've got a question. This time for Doc." Pass it. Um, <laughs> Did I hear you swear? No, no, no. no. <laughs> um, actually, you no. Know what I'm saying, all that, mate. Chris's question we actually answered last week. Oh, I, so I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> this is move so on. So much not fun. Just to just to just to really stick it in. There we go. Um, so get stuff, Chris. All right. <laughs> Next question mate, is from Saul. Hey Scott and Doc. In the interest of brevity, we like that. His long-time listener, first-time questioner, love the pod. Thanks, good man. Thank you, Saul. Now he says, in the interest of brevity, then he asks uh, a whole heap of questions. All right. So <laughs> now he says, I have, a, I have a question regarding portfolio sizing of individual stocks in a core and satellite strategy. So I love this question. He says, assuming I've got an eighty percent core broad market ETF portfolio with twenty percent in individual stocks. So starting from starting from that basis. of his portfolio we're saying is in core index-based ETFs, so basically getting a market-ish return, with 20% of his portfolio in individual stocks. He said a satellite of individual stocks obviously aims to beat the market. As per a previous discussion, diversification is already achieved by your ETF portfolio, so how do you suggest you size the holdings within the satellite? Given the satellite is already only a minority component, individual holdings are an even smaller component of the overall portfolio. Even a big winner may only minimally move the needle on your total portfolio. Should this therefore be a high conviction portfolio? So say less than 10 holdings, for example, or do you just manage the satellite entirely on its own? Thanks, Saul. I think this is a really, really great question, mate. So we've talked before about 20 to 25 companies needed in a portfolio to give you the maximum benefits of diversification, and we are all for diversified portfolios invested in your best ideas. So generally, we say to most people, if you're the average person, 20 to 25 diversified companies is a great way to start building a portfolio. In this case, though, Saul's saying, well, hang on, I've kind of got 80% of my portfolio is already del- yeah, completely maximum diversification. So how do I think about the extra 20%? Do I still go for 20, 25 companies and, as he says, manage the satellite on its own as a standalone kind of sleeve? Or do I say, well, I'm kind of achieving most of that, so I can afford that 20% to just be in a, a small number, single-digit number of high-conviction positions? What do you say?
1: Um, oh, All right, okay. Another very interesting question, mate, uh, from Saul. Alex. Yeah. Uh, so, the... It's good, huh? Yeah, it's great. So, it's it's a fantastic question, and here's what um, I think about it. I think the, the higher-level question, uh, our point to think about here, is what is strategy? Hmm. So, I mean, the strategy is, of course, you want to beat the market, right? But there are many ways to do exactly the same, right? Do you want to meet, beat the market while earning uh, income? Mm-hmm. That's a very different strategy from do you want to beat the market by, you know, going for growth which doesn't pay an income right now. And, and and depending upon the strategy you take for that 20% of the portfolio, your number of companies, your choice and how you go about that is going to be different. If, if you, uh, the thing with high conviction is you can have, like if you if you most people would say high conviction is basically large companies with some growth which is basically safe right? that's one way of thinking about high conviction but you know if that's what you want to do okay but if you wanted to for example get high growth then probably what you know you you possibly can't do it with a high conviction portfolio of 10 right. stocks you might actually need to have maybe 20 right maybe 25 so again i think the answer really is it depends on what is the goal of that 20% um, by how much do you want to try to beat the market? How much risk you want to take in that twenty percent, and that really defines um, your strategy, right? I mean, if, if, for example, if I was taking a very high risk, high reward type of strategy, I would say, okay, I would still split that up into twenty-five, thirty odd companies, but I might, you know, buy small allocations of each, and then let let those run, and I would not take money out unless, or I would not sell anything unless I think the thesis mm-hmm. is broken, mm-hmm. right? That's one strategy. Right. On the other hand. If my strategy was that I want to beat the market modestly, then I would buy high quality growth companies that have a long runway for growth. And basically, mm. just, you know, I could just do that with eight mm. to 10 companies, for example. Yep. Um, so, you know, and the same thing, if, if somebody said I wanted to get some income, then again, I, you know, I could get some high quality growth companies. Again, I'm not very, the income front is really yep. hard these days in terms of trying to beat the market because, you know, most of those things get very priced in very quickly. Mm. But um, again, so I, I, that would be my way of thinking about it.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think I, I feel like I. I feel, it's hard to say specifically. I think if you the the, the problem with a small portfolio, the smaller it is, the bigger the chance you're wrong, right? Because the the you've already mentioned this doc effectively, but effectively the the the, the kind of law of averages doesn't work in your favor on small samples. So the chance that you're wrong with some of those stock selections is higher, just because even if your style is right, if I if I if I'm right on average over thirty companies, if I only pick four, there's a much lower percentage percentage chance that those four are representative of the 30. Um, so I don't know that I'd necessarily say, So you need to have a lot. I just think you need to be mindful. And again, to your point, you're only, it's only 20% of your portfolio. It's not as impactful. But you also don't want that 20% to necessarily lose to the market. So the, the chance that your strategy success, your kind of overall you know, um, large number success is represented with a small number of stocks is just lower. And you've got to just be more correct more frequently. You've got to have a higher strike rate. You've got to hope that can play out in a small number of companies. So as Doc says, the, the kind of – the more conservative your portfolio, they'll feel you need to have, the, the more aggressive or more risky your portfolio. Probably I'd say, I think, I think, yeah, smallish number. You don't want to have 25 necessarily, but I think a single digit number, you know, less than 10 would be ambitious, Doc. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I think so. All right. Next question from Peter. Hey, Scott and Doc. Loving the podcast. You are both stars. Hope you can assist with a little foolish wisdom. After that, mate, we absolutely can. Whether it's right or not, it's a different question. He says, I'm a self-funded retiree who with many friends have portfolios of high-growth companies chosen for both your pro and discovery portfolios. He says, go the doc. In the main, these companies have little to no dividends. Appropriately, we are required to trim our positions at various times of the year. According to your wisdom on providing guidelines on an approach to trim the portfolio to support a pension would be appreciated. Example, should we look at trimming our larger positions that have been on a tear or look to sell out of a smaller position on that company that is positioned for high growth although it is still yet to gain momentum he finishes off saying so many questions best regards Peter so Doc what Peter's basically saying is let's. we've talked about this a little bit in the past we've talked about how to get income from a portfolio and we've talked about the two options one is sell down small proportions the other is to structure a portfolio to provide dividend income Peter's in that former group which is kind of your favourite way to approach it which is Grow as much as you can, and then trim as you go. The question from Peter, I suppose, is: let's say, let's assume that's kind of played out. If if that's true, you've probably got a couple of positions that are bigish, because that's kind of how growth portfolios tend to happen, right? You have a couple of big big stars. You've got some moderate performers. You've got a couple that are either really disappointing or just yet to necessarily deliver for you. You've you've held them for a couple of years. Um, and I, again, I'll just just for the fun of, it, I'll throw Tesla in. As we did at the end of the last episode, you know, Tesla went nowhere for three or four years. And then all of a sudden it took off. So you you kind of, Peter's saying, well, I don't want to miss out on the the eventual growth. I don't want to sell Tesla too early. He's not saying Tesla particularly, but that kind of example of if you kind of got, you know, you'd want an income, you said, well, Tesla's got nowhere for three years. I'll sell now. You kind of missed a seven or eight bagger in the space of a few months. On the flip side, if something's already going well, you kind of don't want to, you know, give up the the big growers, the, you know, Apple goes from 170 to 200. You don't want to give that up if it's going to go to 300 after that. So how should Peter think about the way to trim for income? a growth portfolio?
1: Yeah, so that's a, that's an interesting question. So one, a couple of different thoughts I've got. One is, like, if, if you run a growth portfolio for a long time, then you're going to really land up with a lopsided positions, right? I mean, I know that's got, for example, you've got some... Uh, you know, you've got a portfolio that's pretty lopsided as well. I do, um, and and
0: uh, you, you, fixed w- by some recent share price falls to some degree for the record. But, but it's still, let's, let's <laughs> but let's
1: say it's lopsided, right? I mean, and it's lopsided. Yep. You, know, you, you know, with lops any lopsided portfolio, what happens is yeah. when you know, and then when things go up, it, it goes up a lot. When things go down, it goes up a lot as well. <laughs> it goes down <laughs> a lot as well. So, so I mean, that's you've got to accept that. But I think at some point, when you want to, when you are in that phase where you want to take money out, then. One way to do that is to basically just look at positions, right? Mm-hmm. So if positions are too big, okay. too big is a relative term, but you mm-hmm. know, let's say hypothetically something is like fifteen percent, that's a good candidate to you know mm-hmm. prune a bit, yep. uh, especially if you're in income I- income uh, generation phase, which basically means that you're not adding any more capital, right? Yep. So I mean, the one way, for example, you know, if I'm adding capital my way of dealing with positions is basically to put the capital to work on something else that's not very large. Right, right. right? And that automatically reduces the sort of the weight of the whole uh, large position, right? But one way is to trim that. The other way is that if you don't want to do it, uh, do specifically that, but you want to take out money from the portfolio is to basically trim everything a little bit. Okay. Right? And, 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 And that way...
0: If do you know you think here with brokerage, if you've got 25 different positions, can you afford to do 25 trades to trim money every six months?
1: I think I'm recommending we need zero dollar brokerages. Right? <laughs> right? Just like they do in the States. I, I am just waiting for someone to actually do that here. That would be such a because then I that would can just help, wouldn't it? I, yeah, I would just be then just for just for the sake of it, buying one stock and selling one stock. You know what? I've actually done that.
0: You're trying to sell the broker's broke, aren't you? I, I just did.
1: I just the moment I got announced in my US broker, I actually bought <laughs> one stock. <laughs> <laughs> just for the
0: heck of it, one share, okay,
1: <laughs> one share. Which in a percentage form is like point, 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 point. But I thought I could do that, so I'm going to do it.
0: So I, I really think so I could have bought one share of RFG. Is that what you telling me, Retail Food Group?
1: Think for about that. Cents. Think about that. That would be just awesome. <laughs> so, so, and, and okay, uh, let's get back to reality. Good idea. That's not that's not the case. Yeah. So, yeah. So, like, here's the thing, right? If somebody's in retirement, they've got a substantial sum of funds. You know, is if they're taking out a bit from each one. I mean, you know, you would probably be taking out. You probably do the culling. Um, every so often and you do, right. you know, you take out, like, you know, if you're taking the living expenses, I would basically take mm-hmm. them out at the beginning of the year, for example, or whatever, at some point, and you take out a sum, right? Yep. And therefore, uh, I would hope at that point that when you're when you're selling a little bit from even everything, um, a brokerage is not a big deal. Yep. That would be one way of thinking about it. Otherwise, as I said, you know, you, you could sell some. The reason I, I wanted to point out sell a little bit from everything is that if you thought your portfolio is well balanced yep. and it is doing what it's supposed to be doing, mm-hmm then maybe that's what you want to do, is you want to keep your portfolio's allocation undisturbed, and and the way to achieve that The is that. The, the, I'll point out one more thing, uh, and this might be useful, um, is when you're looking to raise cash, another place to raise cash is to actually look at businesses that are underperforming, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, however best somebody's portfolio is, mm-hmm. uh, I am 100% certain, <laughs> at least certain for my case, there's going to be, there are going to be at least a few companies in your portfolio which shouldn't be there, but are there because for whatever reason, because you haven't gotten around, or because you maybe think that it's going to go back up, or mm-hmm. because you think something is going to happen, maybe it's going to turn around. Well, uh, most things don't turn if they're going to turn around. They actually never turn uh, like 99% of the time. So maybe you find you know, you know, find the weeds first, and you might be able to raise actually some money just by killing the weeds. Um, that's another way. So, you know, multiple ways to raise cash.
0: Yeah, I like that. I, I'll be very quick. I think I would probably go for the larger position. It depends on the individual, you know, kind of personality of the investor. As you say, Matt, I've I've been adding I've been adding cash to my portfolio actually, which has reduced the the size of my largest position as a percentage over time. You, you mentioned I have a lopsided portfolio now. As I said, also recent price falls have helped that one. Um, but generally speaking, I've, I've been someone who's added to reduce the position sizing. That being, and I'm I'm super tolerant of volatility. Right, like I just it never worried me at all. That's I'm not most people. So uh, you know, Peter, depending on your view. If you're someone who's going to, particularly in retirement, you've got a single amount of cash, single lump sum, never going to be adding to it again—at least in theory. Um, just think about your own personality. For everyone else listening, same thing. Generally speaking, I think for most people, the the the, the safest <laughs> kind of, you know, least risky thing to do is reduce some of the larger positions. You may give up something in returns; that you even could give up a lot in returns. But there's every chance that it's going to make your life less stressful, and you're going to simply have a better. Um, quality of life because you're not worrying about this large position that might be 10, 15, 20, 25, 40% of your portfolio, which goes up or down a few percent and kind of, you know, swings your moods every day. So if you're that sort of person, then I would say go with your larger positions first, not all the way down to zero, all the way to even. Just think about taking cutting some of the top of that. If you're okay with that, or once you've done that, I absolutely agree with Doc, trimming the weeds is the best option. Look at the stuff that's just not going to be successful. You don't think is going to be successful. But I wouldn't just look at past performance. I'd simply evaluate your whole portfolio and say of all these stocks, Which do I feel least comfortable with? What am I least bullish about? What do I feel least confident about? They're probably the best ones to sell. All right. My question from Sean. Sean hit me up on Instagram. I know you're excited about that, Doc. He says, I have a question for the podcast, pal. I'm a long-time listener. Love you on the doc. Thank you, Sean. My question is, you guys always talk about compounding or dollar cost averaging. Yes, we do. Now, I would like to know when you talk of this, do you mean in the same stock or ETF or purely into the market itself? For example, $1,000 a month into the same ETF, or $1,000 a month into the market, whether being the same ETF or something new? Thanks for your help, Sean. I love this question, because we talk about dollar cost averaging a lot, and we mean that. We talk about compounding a lot, we mean that too. The question is, how do you do it? So first things first, define dollar cost averaging for me.
1: Well, dollar cost averaging basically is a very simple thing. What basically says that if you are going to buy, let's let's assume that you're going to buy an ETF that tracks the market, mm-hmm. or tracks a certain sector of the market, or a certain something of the market, right? Uh, use the ASX 200 as an example. For example, if you if you want to buy the stocks that represent the ASX 200, you can do that today using mm-hmm. an ETF. I'm not again saying that that's what you should do, but I'm using that as an example. Yep. If you want to buy that, you could, and you you know every uh, say three months, for example. Every you know, let's say every quarter, you can put a thousand bucks, as an example again, into buying that particular ETF mm-hmm. that tracks the S X two hundred. Now, what would happen is when the ETF as a whole or the market is high, you would be buying fewer units of the ETF. When the market goes down, you'd buy more units of the ETF, and that's basically what you know dollar cost averaging means. You're putting in the same amount of dollars effectively over a period of time, but you're getting more shares when the market is down, you're getting less shares when the market is up and effectively it's you know kind of basically smoothing out some of the volatility that mm. is there in the market. That's basically mm. what happens. Um, it sort of mimics what most people can do because, you know, most people don't have money sitting around um, mm. to invest. So, you know, you work, you save, and then you invest. So yeah, that's pretty much
0: reflects life. Mm. Mm. I think that's right. So for me, dollar cost averaging is just, I mean... <sighs> We probably, we maybe were guilty of kind of, you know, using a term that maybe doesn't have a specific meaning, or maybe we're not using it even in the specific way it's intended. For me, dollar cost averaging just means add regularly to the market. Um, and the, thing, the thinking basically is when the shares are lower, you buy more shares. When the shares are higher, you buy less shares. Over time, that means it kind of it's, you know, using some sort of weighting in, implicitly, not deliberately, but implicitly to kind of weight the number of shares you buy. And so you buy a few more when it's cheap, a few less when it's more expensive. That averages out your purchases. So that, that's kind of the idea. We kind of use, it, I think, mate, you and I, generally speaking, just to mean regular, constant deposits into the market, right? And so, for me, Sean, that's that's the answer. Just, just you know, try to develop a, a habit of regularly saving, hopefully a proportion of your paycheck before you use it or anything else. Work out how much you want to pull aside. Don't wait till the end of the month, the end of the fortnight, or the end of the week, and see what's left. Take it out first. Pay yourself first, as the old cliche goes. Put that into an investing account somewhere. Once you've done that, then working out where to put it. And try and invest also regularly. If you wait and only invest once a year, you're kind of, you know, implicitly or deliberately, either way, betting on what the might what the price might be at that point. And that's kind of, you know, it's one of those things, right? Um, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. If you if you'd bought last Monday and then the shares down 10% today, you feel like a deal. If you bought today and price go up again, 15% in the next three months, you feel like a genius. Um, picking a, an arbitrary date can make you psychologically struggled with investing. Investing small amounts regularly takes that out. Now, there is the, the reflection of that, the, the backside of that is that, you know, you, you, you still have to have a certain amount of money to make the brokerage worthwhile. So you can't just put in until we get free brokerages. Doc says you can't put in five bucks a week and be done with it, but you can save up to, you know, reasonably regular deposits, reasonably regular investments to make that work. And compounding the same thing, right? It's it, Compounding is just the, the, the net effect of having done that over time. When it comes to in what, for me, I don't talk about dollar cost averaging. I don't mean it necessarily per stock or per ETF. I'm talking about the market, or any investing generally, not even the market, any investing you're doing. Um, and for me, dollar cost averaging is just saying put X dollars a week, fortnight month into the market. Um, maybe it's every two months if you've only got a small amount of money and you have to wait till the broke, which makes sense. But whatever it is, just go and make buy your best idea at that point with the money you've got. Being aware of diversification and other things, of course. So build your portfolio. But as long as you're doing it regularly, that's all you need to worry about. I don't think you need to necessarily break up your purchases of, you know, if you want to put X in on ETF uh, over a year, don't have to necessarily buy 12 individual lots of it in tiny amounts um, as well as 12 individual lots of Woolies and 12 individual lots of coals and 12 individual lots of BHP. I wouldn't recommend any of those shares, by the way, but just for the sake of the exercise, um, buy whatever makes sense whenever it makes sense, but do it regularly so that you're taking advantage of the market over time and you're getting that averaging out of the cash you're putting to work. Doc, any more thoughts on that?
1: I have nothing to add.
0: Good man. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people. Not trust fund hippies.
1: Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au
0: forward slash triple M. All right, next question comes from oh, guess what? Instagram, mate. How excited are you? I am gonna fall asleep now. <laughs> now I can't I think this is Adam. I won't I won't read out the uh the full Instagram handle because it was sent as a direct message. Uh, but I think it's Adam. He says, Dear Scott and Doc, I would just like to thank you on behalf of the people for your public service. I don't know, but this sounds a little bit like a nomination for Australian of the Year is what I'm I'm seeing here. Adam's about nominators for Australian of the Year.
1: I almost felt like being the Prime Minister.
0: No. No? You and I had a discussion this morning, you're not being Prime Minister. Uh, (laughs) We'll keep that. Okay. Um, Anyway, um, so he's thanked us for a public service. You're welcome, Adam. I said, if you. If you want to nominate us for Australian of the Year or for, you know, a knighthood or something, feel free. How uh, about just the best podcast in Australia? I don't think it's me. high enough, mate. What's the point of being the best podcast? If you could be Saneru Nioban Marty, wouldn't that be better than being Nioban the best podcaster in the country? No, I'll take the best podcast. Really? Yeah. All right, I'll take the knighthood. He, he says, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time now, and I believe my financial literacy has really improved. Mate, that is worth more than a knighthood, just quite, quite honestly. If, that, if we can do that for people, that's what we're here for. A stock I held was recently delisted or removed from the ASX. When a company has been removed from the ASX, does this mean my shares are now worthless and I will not receive anything from the company? Doc, what does it mean?
1: Pretty much that. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah. I mean, there's an outside chance that maybe receivers have been appointed for this company and maybe something is eventually going to... I mean, as, as stock owners, we are pretty much at the bottom of the pyramid yeah, we are. in terms of um, um, we have essentially we own um, we have 100% right over the earnings in yes. that sense but we have zero rights on asset sales so, uh, in, so in leg- the credit list. Yeah, <laughs>
0: legally if the company's wound up there's what's called secured creditors and they are people who've lent the company money and in exchange have what's well, effectively a mortgage so when we have a mortgage what a mortgage means is that the bank has a mortgage over our house it has a claim on our house until we pay the Pay the mortgage off, so a secured creditor has access, has direct claim on the company's specific assets. An unsecured creditor is someone who's lent the company money and gets paid back after the secured creditors. And then, if there's anything left, <laughs> it goes to us poor shareholders. Yeah.
1: So, so, and most cases, when a company um, winds down or yes. is delisted i mean <laughs> you can get delisted for a couple of other you know m- multiple reasons such as you know your share price became so low i
0: was gonna say that right
1: yeah so if it falls below i think one cent or something like that then i think you get delisted as well there's
0: liquidity in market cap rules and all sorts, yeah, of, stuff,
1: all yeah. sorts of stuff but again why does that happen it typically happens that the company's really in deep trouble <laughs> so yeah i mean for all intents and purposes assume that money's gone but it's not it's not 100 percent, but with a pretty high probability
0: Yeah, so that's true. So look, companies, yeah, Doc's already mentioned it. There are some circumstances where you could have a non-listed public company. And there have been very, very, very rare circumstances where a company was delisted, but not because of bankruptcy, just because the shareholders voted to take it off the market. Now, generally, that's to do with other corporate shenanigans. It can be to save some listing fees. It can be because a a shareholder owns most of the shares and simply doesn't want to pay the listing fees, doesn't want the public scrutiny. And so it comes off the public markets but it's still an unlisted company, but an unlisted public company. So just because it's delisted doesn't mean it's going broke. As Doc says, 95% of the time, that's exactly what it does mean. And then it depends on why as to whether you're going to get the money back. So um, you should have received something from the company or the creditors or the administrators at some point to let you know what's going on. Uh, you can assume, though, if it's been delisted for any, you know, for financial or, or kind of ongoing liquidity reasons, um, the chances aren't great. So I, I don't have any great news for you there. Your best protocol port- port- is always the company itself. Um, there will be a share registry. There will be, if there are liquidators or administrators appointed, contact details for those people. So a quick Google, Google should be able to find you those details and go from there. Mate, next one's from Sam. Sam Smartly, because he has one want his name mentioned, starts off with, first name only, please. <laughs> so Sam, I've read that. Well done. Um, he says, hey, Scott and Doc, thanks for all of your insight over the last two years. You're very welcome, Sam. I'm 28 now and I'm fully committed to a long life of investing. So thank you both. How good's that, dude? That sounds oh, awesome. awesome. Very cool. Sam, You know, we'll send you our bank account details. You can send us some, uh, some, some money just to say thank you. No, I'm kidding. My question today is about valuation. It is common practice to use a DCF model, a discounted cash flow model, and discount the future value of money by 10%. My understanding is that this 10% is based off what is supposed to be the next best low-risk investment, which I think was, at the time, the long-term US bond rate or something. Now, given this new age of long-term low interest rates, it makes sense to me the value of money is more than it has been in the past. Would it not make sense to you something less than 10% for these assumptions, say 8 6 or even 4%? Obviously, these differences have huge ranges in the values it spits out afterwards. I'm just curious how your team approaches something like this in the current environment. It's a very, very good question, Sam. And uh, if difficult one. once, so I'll throw the dock. Doc.
1: This is a great question. Actually, I love this question because this is exactly the sort of stuff uh, um, we've been talking about, actually, within the team uh, for some time. <laughs> this is a brilliant question. I actually love the depth of this question, too, which is, you know, so Sam, well done. Uh, so, mate, I'll tell you this. the It is absolutely true that, lo- you know, the long-term, basically, the bond rate plus essentially, effectively, a you know, a risk premium is what essentially is built into most, well, when you when you use, say, 9% or 10%, that's basically saying, well, the long-term bond rate is like, what, 4.5%, 5%. I want another, you know, bonds by definition, government bonds by definition are safe, um, and therefore, I want a premium on top of that, so let's make another 5%. That's, you know, let's, I'm happily making up 5 plus 5, it's 10 So that's basically mm-hmm. the return hurdle that one, one was placing when you were discounting, effectively, the future, cash flows. Right, right. Now,
0: it's and inter- just to explain the 10% again just 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 really clearly.
1: Yeah, so let's assume that the long-term bond rate,
0: yep, US well, Treasuries normally US previous. Treasury yep.
1: is say, 4% of 4%. Yep. Then on top of 4%, you are saying I'm, bu- I'm buying equities. Yes. So therefore, I want a higher return than the bond,
0: the so-called risk premium. So
1: the risk premium, and that's I'm saying that is five percent,
0: right? And you, and that's that's kind of a reasonably arbitrary number, right? There's no kind of really clear maths behind that, other than you want something that's that's larger than the the treasury rate, just because you're taking more risk, and and. It's kind of generally accepted. About five is about the right number. Yeah, is that, is yeah, that about?
1: That's that's about it. right. So these are all rough ballpark numbers. People, say, you know, somebody wrote some book sometime and then they put some <laughs> numbers in. Somebody created some spreadsheet, put it up somewhere, and then that's what got used. Yeah. Uh, so let's make that you know five plus you know four plus five is nine, or five plus five that's ten. Whatever you want yeah. to make it. So that's the discount rate you'd apply to your model. So basically, what you're saying is all the future cash flows are being discounted by that much yes. for every year in the future. Uh, now. You could absolutely argue that the long term, um, again, nobody knows what's going to be like. Remember, in any discounted cash flow model, you you model sort of the first ten years, and then you you basically model the terminal rate. Terminal basically says I'm going to capture everything that's going to happen into the future, starting year eleven onwards. Right now, it's really hard for anybody to predict what's going to be happening in the next ten years. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible for anyone. Uh, to predict what's going to happen from year eleven to year, you know, gazillion, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the f- the future year, year hundred, probably has a very minimal impact on <laughs> on on your model, but it still has some impact. Right. But you know, like the year eleven to year twenty does have an impact on your model, yep. right? So, so that's that. Now, you could say that um, the long term risk free rate right now of the U S Treasury is is what less than two percent, mm-hmm. uh, probably one point something, and you could apply a premium of you know or half or whatever it is to get to six and a half. And therefore, you're going to discount by six and a half. Here's the thing. that to, there's, 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 there's an interesting thing that happens here. If you apply a six and a half percent discount rate, effectively, that's also your required rate of return. Yes. So in other words, if you put six and a half or seven percent as your required rate of return, what you're basically saying is that you're happy to take a seven percent return or six and a half percent return or six percent return into the future.
0: Yeah. And this is really, really important, right? Because it's one thing for people to say, I should use a lower discount rate because that means I can pay more for shares. That's absolutely true. As long as you're prepared, as you say, Doc, for not only – it's not only the required rate of return theoretically. It's actually, if your maths is right, that'll be the actual return you make by definition. That's the point yep. of the discount rate. It says it is both the air quotes required rate of return, which sounds theoretical, but, again, it's the actual return you if, – if that – nothing ever plays out the way you model it, right? But if it did, by lowering your discount rate, you're saying, I'm prepared to make – a lower annual return well into the future.
1: Yeah. Now, I'm going to add some nuance to that because, uh, the, the, as I said, I love this question and we're having back and forth You know, the guys I work with yeah, closely, um, and, and, and the broader team as well. So here, here's the interesting thing. If in a low rate world where everything is at 2% or lower or where we might actually get a rate cut and we might be
0: at
1: 0%, <laughs> 5% is actually great. So people will take the 5% over the 0%, <laughs> right? So, so that makes sense what what i think though is right now so i would say the many equities are underpriced if you assume that mm. the long term rate of return is actually going to be 5% or 6% right because i think equities are still being priced at 8 9% discount rate um yeah, exactly right now if we are going to permanently basically if the rates if the government bond rates keep going down mm. at some point there's going to be a readjustment in the thinking that, well, you know, going to, you know I'm going to be just happy with five. And and so, therefore, therefore, there's going to be a re-rating in terms of how people think about these things. And if the people think about these things in that way, at that point, you sort of hit the fair value. Now, it may not happen because people might continue to demand because, you know, investors as a whole, they've been ingrained in their mind to think in terms of 8 9%, 10%. It yeah. might take a while. So, I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting theory behind this. There's also this practice of... Is all these people who have been applying 8%, 9%. Now they're slowly starting to apply less. Eventually, probably by the time it is no longer valid <laughs> that we should be applying a 6% rate is when... People start doing it. Most people will start doing it. So, yeah, so the right. way the way I have been looking at this is basically when I look at a growth company, I say, well, you know, if I apply actually seven percent rate, this is really cheap. So I'm just buying it because yeah. <laughs> one way to think about it is that by the time most people are going to realize that we should apply a lower rate, that's actually the time when we should be applying a higher rate. So, anyways, you know, there's some arbitrage and interesting things happening there with with behavior, with the psychology of investors. But yeah, um, yeah. So key, remember those two things. You know, what is the rate of return that you're requiring, which basically has an impact on what rate in the future. I've been on record saying that I believe the markets overall over the long term now going to return lower returns. And the part of the logic driving the lower returns is basically just that that. You know, the world is in a lot of debt. If the world is in a lot of debt, the interest rates are low. The interest rates are low. Therefore, the rector required, required yeah. returns are going to be low. And therefore, you know, if the in the history, in the past 30 years, the markets have returned 9%, I think in the next 30 years, the markets are actually going to return on average maybe 6 or 7%. Um, that, I do think, is, is what's going to happen. But that does mean, in the meantime, there might be some arbitrage opportunities because if that's going to be true, I think then... In in some cases, at least some equities are not priced like that. Anyway, that's my long-winded answer.
0: No, great answer, mate. I love it. I think a couple of things from me. The first is that uh, Buffett himself has said, "Effect." I think there's almost exactly a direct quote: "If uh, stocks are cheap, if interest rates remain this low, which is effectively what doc's just said, so uh, both Doc and Buffett agree, which is not that common." So take that forward. I,
1: well. I, I'm, I I actually like him these days. <laughs> uh,
0: also, I'll add a couple of things. The first thing is that we talk about rates of return and we everyone falls into the trap of nominal numbers, right? Nominal means before being adjusted for inflation. The real number is adjusted after inflation. If you get 10% in a 3% inflation environment, your real return is 7%. If you get at the moment, we've got, you know, one-ish percent inflation. If you get 8%, well, guess what? The numbers you're getting feel lower, and they are, but you're paying less or you're paying less more. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> the price don't go up as fast. So an 8% return in a 1% inflation environment. Is exactly the same as a 10% return in a 3% inflation environment. So not only are interest rates lower, but largely they're lower in part because inflation is lower. So there's no, you know, sometimes if you get a couple of percentage points lower, as Doc said, if he expects the future to be two or three percentage points lower per annum than the past, if inflation is also similarly lower, it's actually the same total real return, and we should actually not be too worried about that. We all like larger numbers. I've joked before that I'm sure most people would rather three percent wage rise in a four percent inflation environment. Are either going backwards? Than a one percent pay rise in a zero percent inflation environment because we all want to feel richer and we all measure our own wealth in nominal terms, but it's the real return that matters. So that's really worth thinking about. Um, other thing for me is I think I don't DCFs are funny things, right? I, I don't love the the um, the way people use them to kind of be prescriptive. I think they're useful for working out rough calculations. Um, they are absolutely useful for working out the best. Uh, approach to think about particularly slower growing companies you can't well use a a dcf for stuff that doc often invests in the the hyper growth stuff because the range of outcomes are so enormous um and and most people won't put if you think about the growth let's pick an easy easy one um i wonder if we can agree on maybe google having had 20 percent ish compound growth for a decade am i am i roughly right maybe even a little longer um, it's very, very hard conceptually, I think I've probably said this before, for any analyst to put 20% growth in for 10 years straight. It feels like you're being somehow kind of irresponsible or reckless or ill-disciplined, right? Because you kind of feel like you should, well, I can't put 20% in for 10 years straight because look at the compound value of that, that's too high, I'll, I'll bring it down a bit. And so, and that, 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 I mean, 20% is great growth, right? But it's not going to be the sort of growth that some of the, companies the docs investing in. So, you know, go higher than that. Who's going to put 40% revenue growth in for 10 years for Tesla? right or, or whatever it is it, it it's it's it, just the human behavior human psychology is just really really hard to do so if you're using dcs for that stuff the chance that you're not going to be right is just astronomically higher so just be a little bit careful i don't use dcs very often anymore when i do i tend to use what i call reverse dcfs and i'm trying to basically reverse engineer what the current market price requires of a company so if i use a set discount rate and the current share price i can kind of back in the growth rate, that the, or I can calculate the growth rate the market's expecting. So if, if the shares are now $2, um, then the market is, by you know implication, the reverse algebra, market saying it's going to grow at 5% a year. Do I think that's you know high, low, or about right? That helps me to some degree think about what the market's expecting and then make I can make a kind of relative judgment about do I think I'm going to get more than that, in which case the shares are cheap, or do I think it's going to be less than that, or the same, in which case the shares aren't worth buying. So I tend to use a DCF that way. I call it a reverse DCF. I don't think that's the official title, but close enough. It's just basically to using the same algebra, but using them in a different way to, to, um, to find for a different a different variable. Any more for you, Doc?
1: No, I think that's a great answer.
0: Great question, Sam. Thank you, mate. All right. Next question is from I don't know who this is from, um, and again I won't give the Instagram uh, specifics. It has timber in the title. I'll give I'll give that to the person who's asking has the answer. Uh, if you're asking this Insta question or any question, um, if I'll do, do your deal if you put your name on the Question, we'll use it. If you don't, we won't, just to try and preserve your privacy. Most people probably don't care, but some do, and I don't want to cross any boundaries. Here's the question, mate. Hi, gents. Love listening to your advice each week. Tangents being where some of the best real unprepared stuff comes from. Keep it up. You're only encouraging us. You know that, don't you? Uh, Other listeners are going to be hating you right now. My question for the podcast, if you can, is on employee share ownership schemes and their merits. I have one available that allows me to dollar cost average in monthly, Mandates a vesting period of 12 months, therefore an average stock holding period of 18 months before vesting, and a bonus 50% shares credited at the time of vesting. I'm weighing up this option against putting the same money in an index fund for now, um, with a which will lead to specific stock picking down the down the track, he says. What methodology would you use to compare? Thanks so much for any insight you can provide. Full on. Doc, share ownership schemes or direct investing with your own cash?
1: Um I mean this is a hard one because you know share ownership schemes can be great depending on how much visibility you have into your company and what it is doing and how those shares are priced you know is it a private market pricing is it a public market pricing right. um I mean actually 18 months of vesting is it's not bad actually you know you you get CTG benefits probably and um if you if you hold for more than a year mm. so so that probably works in your advantage it really depends, on, again, what company you're working for and what its prospects are. And, and I'm always mindful of another thing, like if you're working for a company and you own a lot of stock in that company. Now it's it's like a it's a double whammy in the sense if something goes goes badly. Because uh, you know, not you're concentrated in some ways, right? Because you're concentrated because you work in that company. So mm. you know, realize that your work is a concentration in some sense. Mm. It's also an investment, <laughs> in 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 some way or the other, right? <laughs> so 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 I have mixed feelings on this. Um, I, I think it's it it creates. I love I love the fact that it creates alignment. Uh, although at some point, too much <laughs> it is is definitely it would weigh in my mind as a risk uh, to some extent. So this is, again, a very personal thing. I don't think there's a good answer to this. Um, um Again, how do you compare it with the market? Again, it depends really. You know, if you're in a high-growth company that's really doing well, I mean, you're going to beat the market, right? So you're going to handily beat the market. But that's, um again, it's a, a, a subjective call <laughs> exactly. that you have to take. So I, I don't really have a good answer for this because, you know, to answer this really well, you... This is this is a question that you take to your planner, <laughs> because th- mm-hmm. there are a lot of specifics um, that one would need to know to actually give a qualified answer. And again, there's a lot of circumstantial things that you have, you know, personal personal circumstances that you want to have to consider to uh, you know do a good job of answering. So unfortunately, that's my very vague. And incomplete, I truly realize, <laughs> uh, unsatisfactory, incomplete answer, but I think sometimes unsatisfactory, incomplete is probably better.
0: And and uh, and yet a good one. So here's the thing. I think you know, working for the company, you're getting shares in adds risk to your life. Um, so that's the first thing. You are doubling down on the place you're earning your income. If you had done that at Google and you were offered shares for $20, bucks, you are very, very happy with that. If you've done it at Enron and you had a million dollars worth of shares, you're very unhappy because they went to zero, as hopefully our listeners know. And that's the upside and the downside, right? You are, not only did it go to zero, you lost your job. So, NRO employees, you know, got got whacked twice. Um, similarly, was it Lehman Brothers? Same thing. People had Lehman Brothers stock when it went broke during the GFC. Same problem. They lost their jobs. They lost their share portfolios. And some people had massive amounts of stock. Now, you are talking about the vesting period of eighteen months and whether you should sell your shares or not. Here's the thing. I think the fifty percent bonus after 12 months is pretty attractive because you're effectively reducing by a third your purchase price. That's not nothing. So, and I say by a third because the way the maths works out, it's kind of that. Um, that's not nothing, right? So think about that in the context of how much downside you're allowed in those share prices. I don't know how volatile the share price is in the company you work for. Maybe it's a public company, maybe like the Motley Fool, it's a private company. We sometimes get issued shares um, and and those do have a vesting period as well. Um, now, we don't have the choice of taking those up. But often we're, we're given them, which is lovely, um, so, which is great but of course then if you know, we have to then wait out the period and and like any company even private company share prices change so um, again think about the company you're working for um, it's also hard when you're working for a company to really objectively see it from the outside right so um, you know maybe you think it's great because you work there or maybe you think it's terrible because you hate your boss um, does that make it a good or bad company probably not it's really really hard from the outside or the sorry, the inside to be as objective as you need to be sometimes people think the more inside information I've got the better that's true if there's some, frankly, probably illegal thing, like you could trade on inside information, you shouldn't, and you'll go to jail for doing it. But you know, you might say, well, I love this company because I can see the plans that are coming down the pike or I can see the way it's building the business or I can see the way the CEO is trying to take the business or something or I hate it for the same reasons. Um, there's every chance the market either doesn't see it that way or that your view might be jaundiced by how you feel about it and the market may respond very, very differently. I wish my company did X, but it's not, so I hate it. In fact, doing X might actually cost them money or simply, you know, they make money anyway doing something else. So just think about the kind of psychological biases there, as I like to talk about regularly. Um, I I would generally say if you if you're getting a 50% discount and the shares in your objective opinion are reasonably priced, that's a pretty good starting point. And as long as you can lock in a low a long-term capital gains tax discount, it's kind of free money on free money on free money. That being said, if you're locking up your own cash, having to make that investment, you are going to have to pay capital gains tax if and when you sell. I wouldn't necessarily want you to build up a massive. Stake a bit like the Enron or Peter Lehman Brothers stories in your own company you're working for, just because it, that probably puts your financial life, you know, too many eggs in that one basket. Again, could work, could work out great. You end up buying shares in you know Woolworths at dollar, and you've been working there for forty years since the share price now forty bucks, and everyone's happy. That's that's pretty attractive. Um, again, you could be you could be Enron or Lehman Brothers. So, on a risk mitigation basis, just be a little bit careful about how you balance that out. Any more come up for you? while I was talking, mate.
1: No, I think that's.
0: Cool. I think this will be our last one from James. Hi, Scott and Doc. Quick question. What's the biggest investing mistake you've made in your investing career? And what have you done to make sure it doesn't happen in the future? I was about to give you a grief, James, for trying to make us look bad. But then you do say, the podcast has helped me increase my investing knowledge on my 40-minute trip to work each day. If I ever see you in a pub, I owe you both a beer. I Okay, that's a very good idea, James. And if you see just one of us, just me, maybe two beers. Um, <laughs> James, I'll... It's a really good, you know, there's uh, a joke, of course. Um not like looking bad necessarily. Uh, then again, Charlie Munger famously talks about rubbing his nose in his own mistakes to try and learn something from them. And I think the only bad mistake, well, there's two bad mistakes. The first is the one you repeat. The second bad mistake is the one you don't learn from. So I love the question as much as it might make us look a bit silly. We'll see what I've got to say and what Doc's got to say. But as always, I'll make Doc go first so that um, maybe I don't look quite so bad. Doc, you have a... I know you really make mistakes mate but hypothetically is <laughs> there is there is there a mistake you can kind of look back on maybe it's the biggest mistake you've made maybe it's just the most meaningful in terms of what you learned from it what how would you answer James's question Yeah so
1: okay so the biggest mistake I I think like the biggest dollar mistake I've made is probably selling something too early Right Right and um, yeah I mean in 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 share dollar terms, that's a huge mistake. Um, sometimes what happens is if something, you know, rises very quickly, you you fixate a lot on the price. Mm. And, and I think what you forget is the, the circumstances under which, you know, what happened and why it happened and things like that. And then, um, you, you know, there's a particular company, um, so this is Netflix actually, and I, that's, I told, sold a third of the shares at a three x. Then I sold another third of the shares at like I think five x. And at that point, it looked like I made a lot of money, right? But those same shares, you know, if and I don't hold it today, but if I held it today, it'd be like what forty fifty something like fifty x, right? So I mean, you can you can just realize how much money just got got away because I sold too soon. And I got too carried away by the. I guess, the the share price movements and, and the volatility, right? So, so I think that's sort of, I, I try to be really careful about when I sell. Um, I, I think this, the buy decisions sometimes are easier because, you know, like you're looking at a sea of companies and then you, mm-hmm. you're you deciding to buy which one you like. In a way, once you own something, sometimes what happens is, you know, it, there's this, the, the habit of taking a quick profit because, you know, you, 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 you never go broke taking a profit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's, you know that was a very expensive mistake, <laughs> um, uh, because actually, while I didn't go broke taking a profit, I, mm-hmm. I would have been much richer if I did not take that profit at, at, at that uh, at those points. So that's one. The other one, I think, uh, I the other big mistake I think is to to think that in certain industries something looks cheap, mm-hmm. and then I buy it, and then I hold it. But you know, they're cheap. A lot of things are cheap are cheap for a reason. and <laughs> And, right, and, and uh, you know, they they never turn around or the industry dynamics don't work and things like that. So those, I think, are the biggest mistakes. I don't count, like, you know, buying things for what I bought for high growth that didn't work out as mm. mistakes because that's part of the strategy. So it depends on what your strategy is. Um, so striking out, I'm okay with striking out. Uh, and by that, what I mean is, I bought something thinking something was going to work out, but it didn't work out. But that's okay. Um, but yeah. So I think those would be, you know, waiting for turnarounds that never happened. Those those are expensive. I, selling too soon uh, is expensive. I, I'll add one more thing. The other one that that is that one wouldn't realize is a mistake. But when something is doing really well, you could and you bought in very early. You can actually. Um, anchor it happens to everyone you anchor on the price that you bought mm-hmm. right and it becomes hard to buy at a later oh, price man, doesn't it? Yep. and and it, it's it's a very common thing you, you know i see you know it's not just doesn't affect me it affects actually everyone you look at a certain company and say oh the stock price was there now it's there it's significantly now priced in and therefore you never buy right and you could make those arguments for anything that basically has been a great company right you basically think, oh, well, I. Didn't buy there. Then I didn't buy there. Then I didn't buy there. But at each step, it kept it kept doing well, <laughs> right. right? So I think those are mistakes. And, and this this, I th- I think the how to sell is really hard, and how to actually buy more is even harder, and how to buy when you thought you're going to buy but you didn't buy at a previous point, is probably the absolute hardest, because you know you just think that you know this has run past, and I think that those are sort of the mistakes and the, the, you know each one, of, each one of those i can you know come up with plenty the oh, do i have another one um yeah the final one i think is maybe it's not a mistake but if you apply your own personal preference lens mm-hmm. to investing then you might miss out on certain things i mean there are investments that i don't make because i don't like the company for whatever reason but you know on a on sort of uh, you know, me not liking a company doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Everybody else likes the company and the company is doing really well. When I say everybody else, you know, the customers of the company like the company well, and it doesn't matter what I think about it. Um, the company is going to do well as long as, you know, you're buying it at a fair price. So, so I think those sort of things, uh, yeah, but I, I'd I'd couch that as as not a big deal, but are those mm. three as big deals.
0: That's heaps, mate. And uh, I would love to move on to the next question, but I guess I have to answer it myself. Um, Okay, so I'm going to share your first one. Absolutely. I'll share it with some details. I recommended Domino's for members at six bucks ish and sold for a profit because I'm a genius at 13 bucks. And as I say, you you can't go broke making a profit. That was great. Made our members a lot of money. They were very happy about it. And then the shares went to 70 (laughs) bucks. And you don't need me to tell me that the math's from 30 to 70 is another five bagger or so. So, in my smartness, in my intelligence, in my superior stock picking and selling abilities, I made our members some money and cost them even more. And I had learned that lesson very, very firmly, as I've said many times, and hopefully my wife's not listening, um, I feel more pain with our members' uh, scorecards in my own portfolio because um, it's a lot of people following us with our with our recommendations. So that was crappy. Um, that was because I saw some air quotes valuation that I thought seemed too high. How could Domino's possibly keep on growing, blah, blah, blah. Um, that was just silly and cost a member some money, so I learned that lesson very quickly. The other thing with that too is if you've so my lesson from that is to buy slow and sell even slower. To so give it a give it a, a little bit of a, a cliche line, uh, the idea there is do your research first. If you think the company's worth buying, then buy it and hold it until you're sure the thesis is broken. Now in the past, that's meant I've lost a little bit of money on some companies that I've held for too long because they've gone up to high heights and then come down from there. Um, it takes a lot of losses to make up for the missed. Five bagger in Domino's. So it's easy and, and in hindsight, particularly for those who want to take pot shots, and, and you know, we don't have too many of those. We have the occasional member or the occasional reader or listener who says, Oh, you guys should have sold Company X at a higher price. Yeah, we should have. And maybe it's cost us 10, 20, 30% of the way back down. But as I said, a five bagger is 500%. So uh, the math there is pretty straightforward. If you lose 30% of the way down, you make 500% of the way up, I'll take that trade any day. Second one, mate, was, uh, and this is something relatively recently is making sure that when I'm buying quality companies, which I like to do, they have enough growth runway left for the expectations I have for them. I've bought companies uh, probably two of of recent times, uh, not super recent, but yeah, maybe three or four years ago, Telstra and Coca-Cola Amatel. I bought both. I still own Telstra. Coca-Cola Amatel I used to own and have sold after our members did because it was a recommendation of ours. Um, Those two companies are wonderful businesses with great brands, really strong market shares, really strong market positions, Telstra has the best uh, mobile network in the country. Coca-Cola Amatil has the best distribution network in the country for soft drinks. Fantastic businesses, really love them as, as stalwart operations. The problem was the price I paid assumed they would grow faster and further than in hindsight they were able to. Now, either I made a mistake with the assumption or they made a mistake in the execution. This time I think I have to put my own neck on the block. I don't think Telstra had enough growth left. In fact, it had enough growth for the mobile business but the uh, fixed-line business eroded faster than I thought it would. That cost us. And with Coke cola Amatul, I made the mistake of saying, well, it's a great business. It's got some Indonesian business and some Pacific, Island, Pacific Ocean business, um, New Zealand, Fiji in particular. Um, these businesses should grow over time. Coke's a great business, great brand here. It'll keep growing. The reality is if you've got the best network in the country and you're already in every single convenience store, supermarket, petrol station, corner store in the country, where's growth going to come from? Now, easy to say in hindsight, obvious in hindsight, Completely screwed it up at the time. The last one is I bought without doing my own research on a company. So I, this is a very long time ago, twelve years ago. Listened to a particular person who said this is a great stock to buy. So I just, oh okay, he said it's a great stock to buy, I'll buy it. Uh, which was a mistake because it then crashed by ninety percent. So I sold it, realizing my mistake. Again, I sold it without doing research, and the stock went back up again. So I doubled, I doubled a mistake by buying a stock I had no business buying, and then selling a stock I had no interest, no business selling. Um, because I hadn't done my own research enough to be comfortable. Now, we give stock advice. I'm not saying to oh, every member, you can't rely on our advice. What I'm saying is understand the thesis, understand why you're buying and what you're buying, even if it comes from us or somebody else, to make sure if there is some stuff that goes wrong, you're able to see the difference. In this case, the company was it was a temporary problem. Yeah, the share price got whacked, but it came back, and in fact, went much higher than the original price. So I kind of lost three ways there. <laughs> I bought wrong, sold wrong, and then um, the company went on to do multiples of my original buy price. So, not doing my own research, not understanding the thesis, of the company, and why I was buying and why I was selling. Um, again, that was an old mistake, an amateur mistake. I wouldn't make that today because I'm in a different role, different whole different industry. Um, but one for our listeners to think about. Any more from you to come up as a result of that, mate? No, sir. I think we're done. That is awesome. This has been fun. This, this is coming great. in on a Sunday morning.
1: Yeah, I love coming in on Sunday morning.
0: <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Our listeners know by now we're not recording this Sunday morning. We're recording this on Friday. Unfortunately, mate, the market's still in the red as we record this. I was hoping you might it's got a little bit you know, got better and then got worse again.
1: Well, I, I, my, my only comment was that the market is doing significantly better than the US market. What's there to complain?
0: <laughs> it's all relative.
1: It's all relative.
0: Uh, you, you only say that because you've got investments in the US, right? Well, no, no, no.
1: Irrespective <laughs> of that, right, what was the headline? The headline on the fin was the US market drops, what, 4%, or 4.4%. Mm-hmm. Now, if we do any better than that, yeah. relatively speaking,
0: we are ahead. It only matters if you're investing in both. You don't, you don't, you, I, can't, I can't spend bragging rights.
1: Oh, it, it's, all, it's all in the mind, right? I mean, you know, I, I just think we are, we are ahead. So that's what my only comment is. We're we are ahead.
0: We're done. Before we do go though, if you want to join Motley Fool Share Advisor, the service I run with my mate Andrew Leggett, please come and take advantage of a special podcast deal you can get by going to fool.com.au forward slash S-A podcast. That's S-A for Share Advisor, S-A podcast. It's the Motley Fool's flagship newsletter service. We've been going for over eight years now, have a solid market beating track record with must be more than 100 recommendations by now, mate. I should probably count them up. Um, I haven't run it the entire time, all but the first four months I've run Share Advisor for. It is the service that we look for mid- and large-cap companies, usually growth companies, but we will fish kind of anywhere to find some attractive opportunities. Uh, coming at our Best Buyers now, our latest recommendation was only out on Thursday, so we're only one trading day away. And fair to say, I assume, I haven't looked yet actually, but given the, uh, the current market environment today, every chance. If you're listening to this on a Sunday and you buy the stock on Monday, you're probably going to get a better price than Friday's price. So you certainly haven't missed out on that stock. That's fool.com.au forward slash Podcast. Get a year of ShareAdvisor and our most recent recommendation straight away as soon as you join. And that is it, mate. Before we go, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or, of course, your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, give us a rating, give us a review, leave us some stars, tell some good people, put it on social media, sign it in the sky, send a love letter to your girlfriend, just put it at the bottom. Don't forget to listen to Triple M Motley Full Money. She'll love you for it, promise. I don't promise that, but it's a decent chance. Don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox too by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's monthly Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on.
1: Full on. <laughs>